And as the kids are heading out, making sure they get connected back there, today we begin a new sermon series. We begin a new sermon series exploring two letters written by a man named Peter. Simon, as you may recall, was the name originally given by his parents to this letter writer, this Galilean fisherman by trade. Peter, Petros, the rock, was the new name given to Simon after Jesus called him to be one of his 12 disciples, and later as he became one of the founding apostles of the church. Writing more than 30 years after the resurrection of Christ, Peter addresses the concerns of mostly Gentile Christians living in various parts of what is modern-day Turkey, a peninsula in the Mediterranean between Europe and Asia. Now, through these letters, what we're going to see over the next couple of weeks is that Peter outlines the foundational elements of belief and behavior as a follower of Jesus. In fact, some commentators think that Peter's first letter, which is where we're going to start, they think Peter's first letter in particular is reflective of the kind of teaching the early church would have provided in preparing converts for baptism. Whether or not, that's, whether or not that is the case, Peter blesses us in this letter with a concise summary of what practically living as a disciple of Christ looks like in the real world. So it's going to be a very interesting few weeks for us. But we begin at the start. And so I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. It's on page 850 in that Bible that's there in your pew. We're going to look at just two verses. 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. And I invite you as you get there to hear the word of the Lord. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Just two verses. But in two verses, just to start out this letter, Peter communicates a great deal of information. But the word I want to focus on this morning, the word that he uses that I want to key in on, is this. The word chosen. Chosen. Think about, for a moment, think about how we speak about, how we speak of, how we use that word. Chosen. To be selected. To be picked out. To be chosen implies worth or value. When I think about being chosen, my mind goes back to an experience I believe is common to us all. When I think about being chosen, I go back to elementary school gym class. Or maybe after school. Elementary school gym class or right after school and choosing teams. Some of you from your response can relate perhaps. Everybody's lined up as back and forth two people choose their teams. Remember this scene? They walk the line, they look us up and down as they run through all the pros and cons about us, we're jumping up and down, maybe we're waving our hands, and we're shouting, pick me, pick me. Maybe we're even bragging a little bit about our accomplishments. You know what, any team I've been on never loses. I am super fast, you have no idea how fast I am. I am really strong, pick me, pick me. That line, that experience, this understanding of being chosen follows us through life. We try out for the 
varsity team in high school. We auditioned for the high school musical. We campaigned to be the prom king or queen. We send applications to colleges. We apply for scholarships. We forward resumes to businesses that are hiring. We interview for a better position in the company. We fill out a credit form for a car that we want to buy. We make an offer on a house, and it's all the same thing. Being chosen. We're all still in that proverbial line, right? Jumping up and down, waving our hands, trying to sell ourselves, talking up our accomplishments, presenting our references and letters of recommendation, calling out, pick me, pick me, choose me. Being chosen in the world we live in is about proving your worth, demonstrating your value. That's why when we're chosen for something, we see it as a sign of approval. We recognize our being selected as a, as a reward for our hard work. In being chosen, we perceive a sense of separation from others, others who weren't picked like us. We might even understand being selected as an indication of superiority. We're better than them. They aren't as good. They aren't as hardworking. They aren't as deserving as us because they weren't picked. We were. This is what it means to be chosen in the world in which we find ourselves. But this is not what being chosen means in the kingdom of God. This is not what being chosen means in this world as God created it to be. When P Peter speaks of us as God's elect, as those who have been chosen, notice his focus is not on any proving of our worth any demonstration of our value. Peter writes, we have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. We're not chosen because of our merit, through our efforts to clean up and dress ourselves up before God. We're not chosen because of our ability to market or sell ourselves, through our listing of our accomplishments and our references. Interestingly, some people think this is exactly, though, what Peter is getting at when he says, we've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. They hear in Peter's use of words like foreknowledge or elect that we are chosen based on God seeing something good in us, that there would be something good in you. But I want you to, if you have your Bibles open, look right down there. Peter doesn't say that. Peter doesn't say that. Peter doesn't write, we are chosen because we were worthy or we would be worthy, that we would prove or establish ourselves. No, if we listen carefully, Peter declares us to be chosen despite having nothing good to offer God. Infected by sin, captive to the disease of self-centeredness that repeatedly shows itself through visible symptoms of apathy, ignorance, and at times all-out rebellion, we are no good when God chooses us. We're no good. We are, we were, so polluted, so messed up, so strung out. Peter alludes to the cure for what ails us when he writes, we are sprinkled by the blood of Christ. We are cleansed and covered by the worth and value of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Elsewhere in the Bible, in letters written by one of Paul's associates, Paul, 
The exclamation point to this insight is given when Paul declares we were chosen by God not just despite having nothing good to offer. We were chosen by God also in spite of our lack of interest or concern for even being on God's team. Paul will write, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But let's not stop there. It goes even deeper. Again, if we listen carefully to Peter, we are chosen not just in the midst of having nothing to offer God. We are chosen even though we will and we do continue to stumble and fall after we've been selected, after we've been picked for his team. In our world, if you're chosen to be a part of something, a team, a school, a company, being selected comes with expectations you will live up to having been chosen, right? If you don't pull your weight, if you don't make the grade, if you don't live up to the company's image, you lose your spot. You're kicked out. You're removed from your position. Not so in God's house. Not so in our father's family. We are chosen even though God knows we will be a work in progress. We are chosen even though God knows we will fall asleep and forget. We will struggle and fumble along the way. Peter reinforces this truth when he emphasizes our being chosen comes through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Once again, God chooses us not on the basis of whether we're up to the job, whether we have what it takes to make the grade, to become good enough to be on his team. God chooses us on the basis of what he purposes to do in and through us. We are chosen out of God's great love and through the power and persistence of God's spirit, we are morally renewed, shaped and molded into who we were created to become. This word chosen is an important first word in this letter. Understanding the way that Peter is using this word versus the way we tend to use it is crucial. Because knowing we have been chosen changes how we understand ourselves. Many of us, many of us are struggling in our present circumstances. Maybe we've been struggling all our lives to fit in, to feel accomplished, to be successful. And because of all that, we're tempted to believe we are worthless. Or at least, if we don't think that, we at least are tempted to believe we're not as valuable or as worthy as other people. When nothing's going your way, when everything you do <laughs> seems to be wrong, when anything you try just results in failure, you start to wonder, you know? You start to wonder, am I significant? Am I insignificant? Do I have anything to offer? Am I just a nobody? Is my life a joke? A mistake? Is my life an accident? Does anyone even know I'm here? And then this word 
This word from God that comes through Peter reminds us that above all things, we were, we are chosen. And if you allow it to, if we let it sink in, this knowledge that we are chosen resolves any and all uncertainty and insecurity in our lives. You, you have been chosen by God. Our Father has you in mind. He wanted you. He framed you. Jesus knows you're here. He came for you. He died and rose again for you. The Spirit empowers and leads you forward into deeper relationship with him, with his family, and yes, even with yourself. My value, my worth as a person, because I have been chosen, my value, my worth as a person does not fluctuate or change. It doesn't fluctuate or change based on my self-evaluation or frankly, the opinions of others. The way I carry, the way I present myself, the actions I take are not so that I might be chosen. Who I am, what I do comes out of the confidence and assurance I belong. I have a part to play, a destiny to fulfill. Knowing we are chosen not only affects how we see ourselves, it radically transforms how we see others. To see others as having been chosen too means their value and worth does not fluctuate or change based on our evaluation of them or the court of public opinion. Suddenly, our interaction with people is no longer based upon our choice, our assessment of them. We humbly engage everyone the Lord puts before us because we know they, like us, have been chosen too. There's another way. One other way our understanding of being chosen differs from God's. One other way that our understanding of being chosen differs from God's. Typically, as I mentioned before, we associate being chosen as being desirable or advantageous. I mean, think about it. If you're chosen, if you're chosen, if you're selected, that means you get to skip the line. You avoid the hassle, bypass the work, etc. Like the old ad jingle used to go, membership has its privileges. And even if we don't go this far in our assumptions about being chosen, I think we can all tend to agree that being chosen, we generally see being chosen as a protection and avoidance from harm. I mean, being selected, being picked means I'm not left out. I'm not left out. I'm not that guy isolated and hurt without a team, without a place to belong. It's interesting, though, because whereas we think about being chosen as getting on the inside track— if you have it there in front of you, Peter infers right from the start, and he's going to unpack it more later in this letter. Peter infers right from the start where we think being chosen means we get on the inside track. Peter says having been chosen by God leads one to find oneself on the outside track. As a stranger. As an exile. Why? Why? Because being chosen by God is to realize we've been chosen to play for a different team. 
In becoming citizens of the kingdom of God, we find ourselves in exile because at present the world around us is not under Christ's rule. Being set apart, standing out, doesn't lead to privilege or having favored status. We might even feel like we don't belong because as living as a part of the kingdom, we start to realize we're not even playing the same game as the rest of the world. The rules of the game we're playing are different. Embracing our neighbor as ourselves? Not worrying about the size of our paycheck or how much is in our bank account? Giving to those in need without looking to get paid back or earn interest? Keeping company, inviting into our homes, sharing our tables with the wrong kinds of people? Turning the other cheek? Blessing those who persecute us? Forgiving those who are not even seeking our forgiveness? Loving our enemies? Our deepest loyalties and inclinations don't line up with the world around us. Our deepest loyalties and inclinations don't line up with the world around us, so we find ourselves living on the periphery of acceptable society. In other words, beloved, if we follow Jesus, we will be treated like Jesus. After all, Jesus is the chief stranger, is he not? Jesus is exile number one. Chosen by God before the creation of the world to change the game, to rewrite the rules, to call all of us out of that proverbial line, to realize we're all chosen, we're all on God's team. Chosen by God, Jesus is treated as a stranger. Jesus at one point says himself, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus is rejected by the world he came to save, treated as an exile, as he's not only put to death, but he's crucified outside the city gates, outside of the community where the bodies of the sacrificial animals were burned. My friends, becoming a stranger, finding oneself in exile in a place we once considered home is uncomfortable. It's unsettling. It isn't attractive. It isn't convenient. Which is why we often tend to downplay this reality in the church. We often tend to downplay this reality in the church. And we're getting really good at it. We get better at it with every decade or century that goes by. We try to downplay this reality by trying to make the church, we try to make the community of faith, we try to make the body of Christ more like, more familiar with other structures and organizations in society we're a part of. The church is like a business. The church is like a, a fraternity. The church is like a club. The church is like a franchise. But this is a costly mistake. A costly mistake. Because as Peter will talk about and other scriptures will echo, as the church, we are in the world, but we are not of the world. Forgetting or ignoring this is what leads, I believe, forgetting or ignoring this is what leads us to make the significance of being chosen as nothing more than a ticket, an all-access pass to eternity, where heaven becomes the ultimate destination vacation we will go to later. In the meantime, being chosen just means we're pretty much like everybody else, expecting to be comfortable and content here. And the next thing you know, the message, the gospel of the church becomes you were chosen to be healthy. 
You were chosen to be successful. You were chosen to prosper. It's interesting, isn't it? If you have your Bible open, Peter says something completely different here. Peter writes, we are chosen. If you look at it, people, Peter writes, we are chosen to be sanctified. We are chosen to be sanctified. In other words, we are chosen to be holy. We are chosen for holiness. By the work of the Holy Spirit, we are chosen to have our thoughts and our actions brought into conformity to Christ. We are chosen by the work and power of the Holy Spirit to think and act like Jesus. Peter tells us we're chosen to be obedient. We are chosen for obedience. Again, by the work of the Holy Spirit, we are to show others what God is like, to point others to Jesus by the way we live. Holiness and obedience, that's what we're chosen for. That's how we stand apart. Let me ask you, how does anyone know you follow Jesus? How does anyone know you follow Jesus? How does anyone know you're part of this kingdom of God? Do they know because you tell them? Do they know because you say, well, I'm a Christian? Do they know because you say, well, I go to Grace Lutheran Church? Do they know because you, do you stand out because you wear a cross? Do you stand out because you carry a Bible around wherever you go? Do you stand out because when they get in your car or they enter your home, you listen to Christian music? How do people know you follow Jesus? How do, we, do they know we're a part of God's kingdom? Do they know because we tell them? Or do they know because we show them? We show them by thinking, by talking, by acting like Jesus. Beloved, we're chosen not just to enjoy our status as those identified with Christ. We're chosen so that we might actually begin to live as those with whom Jesus identified himself and those who in turn are identified with him. What I'm saying, my friends, is being chosen. The gift of salvation is more than the experience of responding to God's invitation through the profession of faith. It's more than that. Being chosen is about the Holy Spirit's work to enable and equip us to respond positively to God, to live in obedience by this faith through the transforming work God is doing within us, making us holy through cleansing, forgiveness, and reconciliation. That's why we're here. That's why we've been chosen. Does God want us to be healthy? Yes. Does God want us to be successful? Yes. Does God want us to prosper? Yes. But here's the thing. Health, prosperity, and success are the end results of holiness and obedience, of being changed, of being transformed by this God. Being chosen. It's about being changed. It's about being transformed. And we all know this. Change and transformation do not happen without being stretched. Without being broken down and built back up. Without being pushed beyond our limits, our perceived limits, beyond what feels comfortable. As many of you know, my son loves to play basketball. He loves to play basketball. Put a ball in his hands and he will be happy as a clam. He loves to play basketball. Practice? Not so much. Yeah, yeah, you know, if they scrimmage, that's great. But ball handling? Boring. 
I'm just bouncing the ball back and forth. Free throw shooting, boring. And yet, what he knows, what he's coming to understand, as we all learn in life, is that, yeah, you can play. You can play and you can learn somewhat that way. But the way that we actually are able to actually engage the game is we have to practice. We have to be practiced upon. We have to go through those experiences. So yeah, ball handling may be boring, putting the ball back and forth in your hands, but it definitely changes how you are in the game when all of a sudden that just becomes instinctive to you. Yeah, free throw shooting, not really exciting. No defense, you're just putting a ball up in the air and trying to get it in the hole. But when you're in the thick of a game and all other things are going on and that just becomes muscle memory, just, it, it stink, becomes just part of who you are, it makes a huge difference in your play and in the outcome of the game. This is a small analogy, but it applies in a broader sense. God chooses us. Being chosen is about God changing and transforming us. And we can't, we don't, and we know this is true. God isn't going to change us. God doesn't transform us without working upon us, stretching us, breaking us down and building us back up, pushing us beyond our perceived limits, what feels comfortable at times. If we understand this about following Christ, if we understand this about being chosen by God, we'll be much better to handle life and its difficulties. If we don't understand this, we will have a great deal of disappointment and difficulty with our life in Christ. Health, prosperity and success are what God wants for us. But here again is the thing. Health, prosperity, and success are not defined by the standards of this world. They're defined according to the measure of God. And the last word that, that Peter gives us in these first two verses is Peter laying out what health, prosperity, and success look like in the kingdom of God. As Peter prays for it, God's measure of health, prosperity, and success is the blessing, the abundance of grace and peace. May you have grace and peace in abundance. Grace, from the Greek, grace referring to God's unchanging, undeserved favor, which is grounded in God's unconditional freedom and love. That's health. That's prosperity and success. When we live out of the grace of God, when we live out of the unconditional freedom that God gives us, the love that God pours out of us, that's healthy. That's freedom. That's success. That's why we say we live by grace alone. We're not just saying that as a, like a prescription, as a, you know, this is a, a you know, a, a behavioral thing. It's a reality. True freedom, true success, true prosperity is in living by grace, living by the grace of God. Peter also adds peace, Hebrew, Hebrew word, shalom. Shalom, the wholeness, the completeness, the fulfillment of life and creation which only God can bring. That's health. When the world is as it should be, when life is as it should be, that's prosperity. When everything is not fragmented and broken up, but it all comes together the way that God intended. Here's the thing, health prosperity, success. God wants it for us, but only God can give it to us because it only comes by grace and peace. It only comes by grace and peace and grace and peace are only things that God can give. But to come back to it again, that grace and that peace come out of being chosen and being made holy and obedient. We reverse it. We want the prosperity, we want the success, we want the health, we want the grace and peace first. And if we don't get it, well then you know what? We don't feel so holy. You know what? We don't feel like obeying. 
And God says, no, it's not about you. I've chosen you and let me do my work. I'm doing this work in you and then through the work I'm going to do in and through you, you will get to what you desire, to what I desire for you, grace and peace in abundance. Grace and peace are ours in being chosen, but we come to appreciate and experience the grace and peace of God through our experience of being made holy and obedient. And so that leaves us with a question this morning. Always does, doesn't it? Leaves us with this question. Are we living today? Are we living here and now as those who have been chosen? Or are we living as if our life is whatever we choose? It's very, very subtle, so I want to repeat it again. Are we living right now today? Are we living as those who have been chosen? Or are we living as if our life is whatever we choose? If we're living as if our life is whatever we choose, then my life is ultimately defined by my choices. My destiny is based on my decisions. It's my call, so it's my way in the world. When life is my choice, when my life is my choice, I decide the game. I make the rules. I pick the team. My body, my stuff, my privacy is my own to do with as I please. My faith is my own. I engage God in my own way, in my own timing, at my own convenience. When life is whatever I choose, God doesn't choose me, I choose him. When life is my choice, I don't know about you, but when life is my choice, I choose to avoid being uncomfortable. When life is my choice, I choose to avoid suffering or experiencing loss. And I'm going to push it further than that. When life is my choice, I choose to question any God who would allow it to be otherwise. I choose to question any God who would allow it to be otherwise. Are we living as our life is whatever we choose? Or are we living as our life as those who have been chosen? See, on the other hand, if we are living as those who have been chosen, my life, my destiny, is lived. The choices I make come out of the security and confidence of having been chosen. In being chosen, I make choices based on learning and knowing the parameters, what the parameters and the boundaries are. Learning and knowing what is good, right, and true. In being chosen, the choices I make are my own. They're my own. I own them. But they don't come out of nowhere. They don't come out of whatever I please. They come out of a profound and distinct sense of responsibility and call. In being chosen, I don't look to be uncomfortable or to suffer. Let's be clear. In being chosen, I don't look to be uncomfortable or to suffer. But in being chosen, I don't avoid it or deny it either. In being chosen, in fact, I learned to recognize two types of struggles in my life. When I realize I've been chosen, I realize two types of struggles in my life. First, there are the, there's the struggle of things that happen to me because I'm part of a broken world. The kind of struggles that come out of nowhere, that knock the wind out of us, that leave us barely hanging on. The kind of suffering, this is really important, the kind of suffering that is not necessarily God's will for my life but suffering that is also not outside or beyond God's choice, God's destiny for me. 
And being chosen, I can realize as painful as such suffering is, it cannot and it will not negate my God-given identity and purpose. The other kind of suffering that I realize in my life when I realize I've been chosen, the other kind of struggle is the struggle associated with my growth, my transformation into who I am becoming in Christ. These kinds of struggles are challenging, but they are intentional. They are steps I need to take, work that needs to be done in me so that I can be changed. And being chosen, such struggles are like the workout, the training of a weightlifter or a marathon runner. Through them, I'm being enabled to carry more weight, to run for longer distances with God. Beloved, are we living as those who have been chosen? Or are we living as if our life is whatever we choose? As we reflect on this question, I think it's helpful to remember these letters that we're reading. They were written by someone chosen, just like us. Someone who didn't start out with all the answers. Someone whose journey into holiness and obedience didn't just happen overnight or frankly even happen within three years. In Aramaic, Jesus called him Cephas. In Greek, the word was Petros. They both mean stone or rock. But my friends, Peter didn't instantly become a pillar of the faith. He was anything but a rock from the start. Think about it. Peter, think about what we talked about. Think about what we looked at. Peter was chosen by Jesus without any qualifications or references. He was a fisherman. He wasn't even a rabbinical student. And Peter, when he's chosen, even realizes what we talked about before. Peter, when he's chosen by Jesus, even falls on his knees and says, Lord, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. You don't want me. Peter was chosen despite having any qualifications or references. Peter was chosen by Jesus even though he'd go on to make a lot of mistakes. You remember Peter, right? He had a tendency to shoot his mouth off. He talked a good game, and let's give him some credit. He was earnest in his intentions, but Peter had this compulsion towards running the other way when trouble came a-calling. He did not always face suffering well. Think about it. Peter was the first to openly declare, declare Jesus was the Messiah, and that yet in the next moment when Jesus declares he's going to go to the cross to die, Peter interrupts Jesus, pulls him aside, and starts to rebuke him for talking about suffering in this way. That's just not good talk. Stop that. When Jesus announces to all of his disciples they're all going to abandon him, Peter publicly protests if everyone else runs for cover, he never would. And the same man who insisted he'd die with Jesus before he'd run away swore aloud three times denying he even knew who Jesus was before a hostile crowd. This is the same Peter who was the first one to go in and find Jesus' tomb empty after his resurrection. But it's also the same guy who tried to go back to his old life of fishing until Jesus gave him a new commission. Tend and feed my sheep. Take care of my lambs. It was Peter who inaugurated the birth of the church through his bold preaching of the very first sermon about Jesus after the promised coming of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. Right? Yet, it's this same man who later wilts under the pressure of legalistic believers who sought to treat Gentile converts differently. 
Despite a vision from the Lord, Peter had to be called out publicly to make a place at the table for the Gentiles. If you're tracking with me, you see something here. Holiness and obedience did not come easy for Peter. Think about it. At first, Peter kept focusing on the choices he was making rather than his being chosen by Jesus. Peter at one point just puts it all out there and he says, we've given up everything to follow you. And think about it. Think about it. At first, Peter tried to avoid being uncomfortable. He ran away from suffering and always faced change with difficulty. And if we're really going to be honest, if we're really going to truth tell this morning, if we were there, if we were there, we wouldn't choose Peter to be on our team. Right? Peter's not getting picked to be on my team. Based on the world standards, we'd kick him off the team. Dude, shut your mouth. Stop talking. <laughs> he wouldn't have been chosen in the first place. Because the thing is, Peter was not always a rock in his life. He was more like putty. More like clay. And yet God chose him. And his clay in the hands of the potter, God his father, continually covered by the forgiveness, the atoning sacrifice, the blood of Christ, and by daily being sanctified and molded and shaped by the Spirit, Peter became the rock he was called to be. By the grace, the faithfulness, and power of God, Peter grew to lead thousands, thousands to Jesus. He became the means of transforming the life and practice of entire households and communities. Peter's resolve and endurance strengthened so much that he willingly suffered persecution, imprisonment, beatings, even rejoicing at one point, saying he was worthy to suffer disgrace for the Lord's sake. Rejoicing that he was worthy to suffer disgrace for the Lord's sake. My friends, when Jesus way, way back at the beginning said to him, you are Peter, you are the rock, it was a faith statement, a covenant promise. Peter was not the rock yet. But now, as he's writing to believers who struggle and are facing persecution, as Peter himself is facing martyrdom in Rome, shortly after both these letters are written, church tradition holds, Peter was executed, crucified upside down. Now, 30 years later, as Peter is writing to those who are facing struggle and persecution, having become what Christ called him to be in faith. And here's the thing. Here's what you need to take away from this. Don't feel distance from Peter. Don't put him up on a pedestal. Don't put him in the pantheon of spiritual giants. Because here's what you're not getting. What we don't get is what Peter becomes. This is why he's writing. What Peter is able to do, who Peter is able to be, is what the Lord calls and promises to make of us all. Holy. Obedient filled to the point of overflowing with grace and peace. I know, I know, sometimes we get discouraged, don't we? It's easy to get discouraged. We get discouraged because we only can see 24 hours or maybe 30 days of our lives at a time. And we get discouraged. We get discouraged not only in ourselves, but only being able to see 24 hours or 30 days at a time. We get discouraged in other people. But Peter writes to us, to open our eyes, to broaden our perspective, to, sit, to help us to see that when you watch the whole lifetime of how God is at work in us, the whole lifetime of how God is at work in us, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are at work in us, in the same way, in the same fashion, 
that they were working in Peter's life. His chosenness is our chosenness. His destiny is our destiny. My friends, out of love, God, our Father, chose us. He declares us to be righteous, justified, even when we are not. Think back to that moment when you responded to the grace of God. You didn't have it all together. You, you didn't have it all together two years from now. You don't even have it all together right now. And yet, going all the way back, back before you ever said yes to God, by the way, he said, you're righteous. He said you were righteous before you even cared what righteous meant. God declared you to be righteous and justified, just like me, even when we're not out of love. And then, in that the declaration that we're chosen, declared to be righteous through the sacrifice, the death and resurrection of the Son, Jesus, by faith, Jesus calls us to follow him. To follow him and to become all that he is. Holy, obedient, and perfect. And, that, and through the forgiveness that is ours by the blood of Christ, through the sanctifying work as the Holy Spirit works in and through us over a lifetime. Over a lifetime. Our failures become victories. Our separations become bridges. Our faults and our weaknesses become strengths. And our deaths, oh, and how many deaths are there? Our deaths become new, eternal, stable, perfect life in the kingdom of God. You are chosen. I am chosen. We are chosen. Beloved, the triune God is making rock out of the putty of our lives. And the cement in our life that makes us rock solid is the love of God our Father, the faith of Jesus Christ, and the hope of the Holy Spirit. Receive that word. Receive the gospel this morning. Let us be encouraged. Let us be confident. Let us be humbled in the knowledge we have been chosen. And as we continue on with Peter, out of God's choice for us, let us learn together what it means, what it looks like, what it feels like to live faithfully as graceful witnesses in a broken world. Amen.